1: This is Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Mark. And today's guests make me happy and hungry. Mark Broussard and Jay Rifle join me on this episode of Side Projects to talk about the connection between music and food. Each one has dipped a toe in the other's wheelhouse, which makes this a very interesting conversation. We talk about the worst jobs in ancient kitchens, Mark's best meal ever, and I get excited about aspic. We discuss doing musical and gastronomical covers. Jay explains what a cock-and-thrice is, what kind of bear meat is best in stew, and which recipe is like sewing an old boot. We also learn some odd ancient ways of measuring time and quantities, the reason cookbooks may have actually been written, and what Mark's dream ancient apprenticeship would be. And there's some exciting news for Mark Broussard and Joe Bonamassa fans. So follow Jay at Jay Rifle and at Edible History NYC on Instagram. Buy his cookbook, A History of the World in 10 Dinners from Rizzoli, New York, wherever you buy books. Follow Mark at Mark Broussard on Instagram. Pick up SOS4 on Keeping the Blues Alive and help out a wonderful charity. And check him out on one of its endless tours. Follow us at Performance Annex. On X and Instagram, support our coffee habit at ko-fi.com slash anxiety. buy merch at performanceanx.fiddlest.com, and now grab a drink and a bite and enjoy Jay Rifle and Mark Broussard discussing food and music on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast
2: Network. Yo, what's happening, guys? Hey, man, such a pleasure. So sorry, I was on the other link.
3: Oh that's no. <laughs> yeah. Right, no, we're worries. all a little busy these days. Oh
1: yeah. Everybody's going nuts. Got too much to do. <laughs> oh good to see you again. Yeah, it's good to be seen, Mark. It's good a, to see. It's been a. w it's been what, you know, a week? Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is uh, Jay Mark Broussard. Mark Broussard, Jay Rifle.
2: Lovely to meet you, sir. Pleasure to meet you as well, sir.
3: So I had him send you a copy of
2: the crazy book, but
3: I I don't know if you had a chance to look at it. I've been listening to you nonstop for a couple days. So it's been been quite a pleasure.
2: Yeah, I was skimming it just a little while ago, actually.
1: (laughs) So Mark has worked with some amazing people. Jay, I don't don't know if I sent you enough of Jay's info because Jay, the the way I met Jay was actually through Beat Bobby Flay, where (laughs) he beat Bobby Flay with a mincemeat pie.
3: Oh wow. It's one of those silly, you know, competitive cooking shows where you sure. You know,
1: yeah. Yeah. Dude, adds, there's nothing silly about it. That's one of my favorite shows. I love that show. <laughs>
2: okay. You know what I love sure. about it is is the is the the lack of ego involved when Bobby gets beat. He's like, yeah, the dish was better. Yeah. You know? He's a little guy. He's, he's, I guess he's got nothing to prove, you know. Oh, exactly. yeah. So a minced meat pie.
3: It was like, yeah, the classical 19th century ones, so but it had to it had to have meat
2: in it. I mean, I like meat pies. Yeah. I love meat pies, but
3: it, it still tastes like Christmas. It still has that, you know, it's like the mince people get at Christmas, but like pies like that used to be a way of like preserving food. And if you were fancy, you would have actual uh, spices and stuff. So you mix them. Um, that one's from the 19th century. Then I have another one that's
2: actually from like Tudor times, which is lamb based. And it's like a little funky, but really, really good. I think lamb may be my favorite protein, actually. Oh
3: no way, really? I yeah. love like lamb. You like sure. lamb neck and stuff?
2: Asabuco. Uh, I'll I'll do it every way that I can get it. But I generally just have some grilled lamb with a little tzatziki, you know, to kind of that kind of a thing. Uh, there was a recipe I came across years ago that had like uh, cardamom uh, uh, yep. marinade and yogurt, and and it was fantastic. It, it, it came with this. <laughs> Like the recipe also had the sides. It had like a pear chili chutney and oh, oh wow! This I need to I need to find that recipe again. Well, yeah, we're, yeah. What's that out what's Maybe I can dig it up. Well, it was a show. It was a guy named Roger Mooking who had a show on Food Network, I believe, called Everyday Exotic. Oh, right, right, yeah, yeah. I remember that very vaguely remember that show. That's funny. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. See, everybody else in my family is really good in the kitchen. Everybody. My father, my mother, my, both of my brothers were actually in the restaurant business. One is still in the restaurant business. My wife is an excellent chef. So I actually don't do much of the cooking, especially when it comes to the Cajun food dishes down here. My wife tends to take care of the rice and gravies and the étouffées and the gumbos. <laughs> oh, uh, lovely. But uh, when I do cook, I like to cook exotic things. I like to cook. There was a little restaurant I stumbled across in uh, not Lake Tahoe, uh, Reno, in Reno years and years ago. I think it's called Sisters or Mothers or something like that. And there was this archeologist uh, who, who, when she retired from archeology, span she and her daughters opened up a little cafe. And she, the dish that I had that day was like this Egyptian chicken yogurt rice kind of a dish. Yes, yeah. so good. <laughs> oh, so good. Man. Yeah, well, I got to get back. That.
1: Well, th- this is an episode that I I've been thinking about <laughs> doing for a while, or an episode similar to this, in in one way or another, and with the releases that you're both having in in either just now or in the very near future, I thought this would be a really cool pairing because to me, it seems like you're both pulling from old traditions jay you know pulling from ancient manuscripts and all and, and mark you pulling from old soul and r influences in in bringing it all and i don't really want to say modernizing it because but what you're doing is you're paying homage to everything and and making it to me more accessible to people today and having them maybe do a little more research on their own. Oh, this is really cool. Where did this come from? And hopefully going back and doing a little research. So I thought you guys would be a really cool pairing together because in my eyes, you're doing something similar but in two completely different mediums. And you both have touchstones on the other's medium. So Jay has a bit of a musical background and Mark, you've mentioned that you do some of the cooking and all. So I've I was hoping this would be a a good matchup. So I guess we'll find out.
2: We'll do our best. I I do come from you know from Cajun country, right? Jake, can you tell me is there another native cuisine to America that represents an entire culture, not just a single dish like a pizza or a hamburger or anything like that, but an actual whole genre of cuisine that that you could say that's native to America that we've exported around the world? the same way that the cajun food has i've seen tabasco sauce everywhere kid ca- cajun chicken yeah uh, everywhere well
3: i think i think you'd say soul food would be you know the kind of sure you yeah. know that and that but you know cajun and and like creole cooking is yeah it's it's Hey, it's amazing. <laughs> I'm real sorry. I actually came up under under a Cajun chef for a while. They had a, a classic Cajun restaurant here in, in New York in the 90s. he's from Louisiana. I think he moved moved back there and is probably out in a pirogue right now on the river. Because <laughs> that's that's the kind of guy he is. Yeah, I just the way I look at it, there's so many there's so many types of scenes that are like regional to an area, but I think what you and I do is absolutely incredibly similar. I like, I might do a little, I like a bigger time frame, but it's like the approach of like, you're not trying to redo a standard. You're not trying to like redo yeah, a right. sole standard. You're trying to connect with it and connect people to it. And like, that's, I'm trying to do a lot of the same stuff, even though I'm doing it through like historical research and I'm going back to these recipes that might be from Tudor times, might be from ancient Rome. But I think the trick that I do is I try to pick and choose the the recipes that people now will respond to, as opposed to cheating. Like, as opposed to just redoing a recipe. I cheat sometimes, but not, you know, but I try really hard to pick a recipe that, in its true form, in capturing the soul of the cuisine, is is a connection to the past, not just a, Oh, I was inspired by this.
2: So I'm going to riff on it. You know? Yeah. There's some guys down here that are doing some really fun things with traditional Cajun cuisine. Uh, there's a guy named Colin Cormier that has a po' boy joint in downtown Lafayette called pops po' boys. And I think he's got the best shrimp po' boy I'll ever eat. And it's like a gourmet shrimp po' boy, but My wife and I, actually, the first time we went to this place, it's just fried shrimp, arugula, tomato, and a lemon caper sauce. But my wife and I got these shrimp po' boys for the first time, maybe a few months after they had opened. And at the time, he was also bottling his own soda pop, which was fantastic, but it was so full of sugar. It was crazy. It was like 80 grams of sugar in a bottle. Oh man! It was so good, though. Uh, So I got a root beer. My wife got a Satsuma fizz Uh, and and we went and sat in our car in the parking lot and we just listened to the radio, eating these sandwiches and I swear to you, about three or four bites in, she and I looked at each other and we both started crying. Wow. And Um, it was like nostalgia for both of us. It was exactly, I, I was transported back to being on the baseball at the baseball park when my brothers are playing baseball all day long, I'm still so young I can't play yet, but I'm playing on the playground, playing so hard and so long that I don't even realize that I'm hungry. And then we go to the, the po' boy shop after the, the ballpark, and my dad just kind of hands me a bite of his own shrimp po' boy. That's what it was nostalgia on bread. Yeah, it was incredible.
1: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Before you skip over this ad, give me one minute. Like most podcasts, I pick sponsors carefully and I use the products that advertise here. Pure Spectrum CBD is a product that has been really beneficial for me. They have a wide variety of great products that can be used on a daily or as needed basis. I've been using the tincture every day and it's been wonderful for easing anxiety. And I absolutely love the isolate. I use it instead of acetaminophen or ibuprofen. And it's worked so well for the relief of aches and pains. They also have soaks, lotions, salves, gummies, and more, plus an entire line for fitness recovery. They even have products for your pets. See everything they offer at PureSpectrumCBD.com. And if you have questions, they're there to help. They helped me when I had no idea where to start. After you fill your cart, use code PERFORMANCEANX for 15% off your purchase. Pure Spectrum CBD Pure Spectrum CBD. Pure Spectrum CBD.
3: Wow! Nothing does does nostalgia like food, and there's stuff. There's stuff that I tell myself that is childhood food. I, you know, I, and I say to people sometimes, like I don't even know if it's good to me. I'm sure po I love, obviously, but there's things that you know, like they just are a part of like of the learning experience for me as a child and for like my discovery of food that like
2: have such strong nostalgia for me. You yeah. know. Yeah. It's been fun for me too, because my wife was a really picky eater as a child and a young adult. And so she's still just kind of discovering, I think she had beans for the first time, like two years ago. Uh, and, and and she made beans again tonight. You know, she made some black yeah. beans and some, some Cuban yeah. rice, but it's been a lot of fun to open her up. I think I've, I've honestly created a bit of a monster in her and my daughters though, because they don't, like McDonald's is definitely not cutting it. for the- <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah.
3: My, yeah. My secret shame is actually as a child, I was a completely picky eater. Right? Like, really? like And it was weird because like, like my father would like love to eat, you know, which back in the day it was ethnic food. And you know, like when I was growing up, like, you know, if you would find Mexican through to Massachusetts, it was ate terrible. But like we, we traveled a lot, we were all here. You know, he was always like travel, travel real. Like I was incredibly lucky to travel at time when I was a young child, and we ate all over the world and stuff. And I was always just like, I want bacon and egg. Like Dad, I'm afraid of all the food. And then like I end up, you know, now I've eaten tons of insects and bears and snakes, and I've cooked <laughs> everything. And you know.
2: It's I haven't gotten strange. to the insects yet. Yeah, Interestingly enough, my, my my second born, uh, he's he's about to be 18. Um, we've taken all the kids on on solo trips uh, on occasion. And and Gib was the last one in the bunch to, to need his trips. So we took him to New York City last year. And he's a very picky eater. I, I've seen this kid. Well, I say picky. I've seen him eat turkey sandwiches covered in sriracha and like <laughs> Spicy, uh, what do they call those flaming hot Cheetos? Oh, yeah, uh, he's that's not very picky necessarily. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but he doesn't really dive like he he just doesn't venture out very much. Yeah. Taking him to New York, uh, we went to this really nice little French place for lunch. He had caviar. I'm I was blown away that the kid just changing his location kind of opened him up a little bit, you know what I mean? So I think travel and food is they're always yeah. gonna go hand in hand.
3: Yeah, New York will spoil you. It is like one of the most, you know, diverse. It may be the most diverse food location like in the world. It's crazy. I'm so you know, I'm a very lucky person in that respect. And I do try to take take advantage of it so you I have, get anything.
2: Yeah, I've spent small fortunes on food over the years. <laughs> I remember being at a spot uh in Vegas years ago for my birthday. I was holding court at a table with about 15 of us, and they they came out and said, uh, tonight's special is the Kobe beef. It's sliced in one-ounce slices, and it mm-hmm. starts at $100 an ounce. And I said, yeah. we'll, we'll start with $10. <laughs> let us get it on. Let's wow. go ahead and rip the bank right up yeah. tonight. Man, I want to hang with you. It's fun. <laughs> exactly. It is fun, because I also hate uh, awkwardness when the check comes. So, I typically do pick up most of the tabs. Uh, the, definitely one of the The best meal I've ever had was this little Italian spot in Amsterdam. It was an Italian rep for guitars, uh for Gibson guitars out there at mm-hmm. the time. And uh this guy was kind of game for whatever. If you wanted to go yeah. get the hardest drugs in town and the the and the and the roughest looking gals in town, <laughs> he he could find them. You know what I mean? He knew exactly where to go. There's lots of to be said to that. Uh, and I said look man I just never really had a great Italian meal I know and I'm not in 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 Italy but this is the closest I've been so far you got a spot you want to take me and he says yeah so we go to this little spot and man it was it was one of the most unassuming places ever you wouldn't know it it was open unless the sandwich board was out on the sidewalk yeah Oh wow the maitre d was in like running shorts and a bandana and she sits us down and the place is kind of like a dance club it looks like like there's lights and speakers on the ceiling as well. They could just push all the tables and chairs out of the way. And uh, before that, I'd asked him what his favorite wine was. And he said, a Brunello. So when we sat down, she said, what are you drinking? I said, let's start with a bottle of Brunello. And she kind of looks at me and looks at him, kind of confused. And he just gave her, gave her a nod. And that was the last thing <laughs> we ordered. We didn't order a single.
3: No, that's,
1: that, that's the way to do it. Yeah.
3: Wow.
1: you
2: bring yourself. That's a, Yeah. That's oh. living, man. It was a $3,500 meal at the Gee. end of that night. I mean, it was worth <laughs> every penny. <laughs> or one nice Les Paul. Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: So, you guys are, like I said, you both touch on the other's career a little bit. So, was there, and I guess Jay, will start with you. Was there ever a time that you could have, or you thought about maybe flipping to the other career, maybe, maybe uh, pursuing music?
3: I mean, the the attitude is when I started. I I went to college in a very weird way. Like I entered, I co-enrolled in high school when uh, into college, and I actually originally enrolled as a music major. And I was obsessed with like modern classical composition. Oh, and I I had these very very like young person crazy ideas of I was very interested in like composition with computers and stuff to get away from like organic, you know, to like, Oh, so you're not held back by, Oh, you only have six strings or 88 keys or whatever. And then I decided that was crazy, <laughs> but it's funny cause like in my food career, weirdly enough, I came out of classical pastry and uh, you know, like so-called molecular gastronomy, like these very, very high tech, a lot of, a lot of liquid nitrogen and serification and all this crazy stuff. And then I ended up going completely the other way. Because I've always been like a, a history nerd and I started, you know, like becoming obsessed and fascinated by historical food. So now, you know, now you're going back and yeah, I do cheat in that. Yeah, I use like a food product or I don't like kind of mince everything <laughs> with a knife. But it's also you have to remember in that context that like throughout human history, like the, like the most common labor saving device you know, was probably a servant or an indentured servant or a slave or whatever, going back to Rome, you know, and the, you know, you had a lot of people working in kitchens. So I don't feel that bad about pressing a button to do my chopping for me. So <laughs> I have just to do it. I have done a lot of those things, you know, a couple of times by hand, just to see how
2: extraordinarily miserable it was. You don't, uh, you don't feel bad taking a job away from a surf Jay <laughs> <How> <laughs> <dare you? laughs> or a dog. I was
3: actually, I was actually speculating on the, that. One of the worst jobs in a, in like a Tudor kitchen or was this thing called a spit boy, right? So they did a lot of spit roasting meats cause it's a wonderful way to cook a meat. And the first job you'd have, like as a child, would you be the boy who sat there and turned the spit all day? Oh. And then it, Around, around Elizabethan times, they came up with this brilliant labor-saving device, which was a dog on a treadmill. It was actually called a turnspit dog, and the dog uh, had like those dogs with very short legs would walk on the treadmill and turn the spit, so the wow. boy could do some equally terrible and awful job elsewhere. Do and then those like- were actually replaced later by clockwork and like weights hanging that would still turn the. You can always so. tell the
1: spit boy because just his right arm was jacked,
2: <laughs> really yeah. big. Yeah, <gasps> and his whole right side was just cooked. Yeah, but yeah. So I was one like, side. "Oh man, you're only this far away from you know <laughs> from the stuff you're cooking." So no, that's a terrible job.
1: So, Mark, you said you had family in the restaurant business. Was there ever a time where you thought? I know you grew up in music with your dad and all, but it was there ever a time you you considered? following some of the family into the restaurant business?
2: I would say that it's always been very, very brief just because my brothers uh, had such an inside look. My my oldest brother was an owner of a little meet and three kind of spot here on campus in Lafayette. And, you know, I remember him complaining about raising prices a quarter and, and, and having customers yeah. like really freak out on him, you know? And then my other brother was on the corporate opening team for a a major franchise that ended up going belly up. And, you know, just the realities at play from both of those guys' experiences taught me that uh, the restaurant business is. Not for the faint of heart, and definitely it's a rough people. game. Yeah, it's a rough game. I've got friends that are still in the game and now started opening bars, and opening bars is an experience that makes them never want to open another restaurant ever again. <laughs> <Yes>. Wow, <laughs> you know.
1: But now, some would say, you know, the music business is not dissimilar.
2: Uh, yeah, that seemed daunting to me. So, you know, shady is all get out. Yeah, exactly. you know? <laughs> <laughs> You might show up to work one day and you don't have a job. That's very common in the music business. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. But at the same time, you know, especially where I come from, food and music are, are really hand in hand. I mean, they don't, there's not a single family gathering that doesn't include both around here. Somebody in the family yeah. plays the guitar or the fiddle or the accordion and and somebody knows how to how to make a, a real nice étouffé.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh
2: man, you guys really, so really want you? to hang out with you. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I'm interested. I mean, because like, do you, like, how do you think about like older music and how do you look into, like, are you digging up old stuff? Or are you, are you doing research? Or are you just listening or like, I know you've been in this forever, but like, how do you think about it?
2: Well, I grew up in a, in a household that was very forward thinking with regards to music. My father, had a live band with programmed drums, bass, and keys in like 1987. Meaning uh, he had a, an Atari computer on stage right. that was playing the <laughs> bass drums and the keys while he had a live horn section and oh, and, a, and, a, and he was he was fronting the band. He was not a, a big fan of traditional music, at least traditional Cajun music. He had a, a, some respect for like bluegrass music because those players were a little more sophisticated. Uh guys like Chet Atkins were doing things on guitar yeah. that were really impressive yeah. to a guy right. like my dad. My dad is a jazz fusion player. Oh so cool. I, I heard Chick Corea and and you know uh Wes Montgomery and George Benson more than I ever heard I- any any other artist in the world. Uh I, I don't think I'll ever be able to catch up because my dad <laughs> listened to that stuff so often. But around i want to say around 23 or so uh i started becoming friends with some of the local players around here who play traditional music and really fell in love with with the genre cajun and zydeco music is some of the funnest music to go listen to live yeah my wife and i have danced more to that stuff than than we've ever danced to to anything in the club you know so I I love the stuff but it's just not my wheelhouse at all. There are very different rules at play in some of the traditional Cajun music as well. Like there's these weird half bars and weird little turnarounds that I think you you really have to grow up with it to understand it. Uh it's not easily taught in in adulthood. Right.
1: Oh yeah. I've I've had a few zydeco players on the podcast and trying to I'm not a musician, but trying to study that just for a podcast, I'm like, my gosh, this is a whole different
2: world. It's a really different world, and it's a really competitive world, so you have all these rivalries in both the Zydeco and the Cajun side, because these guys are really fighting for the same gigs. They're fighting for the same headline spots at the same festivals every year, and so there can be a little tension. You know, if, if, if one guy used to be in the other guy's band, yeah, he might, he might just go up and play the the last guy's entire set. (laughs) If he's not, if he's not happy with the time slots that he was given for the festival, he might just go out and play the headliners entire set.
1: Wow. Yeah.
2: Oh.
3: Never I think know. one. I think one thing that fascinated me, and it's it's technically similar in a strange way, is when you start looking at these cuisines, you know, because like that's one of the crazy things about about the book that I'm doing is it's ten different periods in history, and actually has like probably 13 or 14 different cuisines of a of a time and a place, and like most of us who learn cooking or pastry nowadays, we're basically you know, if you learn in America, right, mm-hmm. you're learning classical French techniques with like specific applications to one to one thing, right? But you forget that some of these cultures had completely different ways of doing stuff and thinking about stuff. As simple as like, I love to cook like on a real walk, and like everyone who's got like their little home stove, it's got the silly walk burner. They got a walk burner, and I'm just like, you, know, you can't. Cook with a wok like that. Like if you ever you ever seen an actual Chinese restaurant with a <laughs> wok station, you know the flame's a good foot and a half high yeah. and puts out you know like m- more heat than your whole stove turned on all the way. Or a lot of the ovens that people you know either in in like the Middle East for cooking in are much closer to a modern Indian tandoor oven, which is an oven like that's buried in the ground. Yeah. So it's not something you're shoving stuff into and taking it out of, and it, There was so much that I had to learn just to read, just to read a recipe and think, wait, what is that? You know, cook till the fat rises, which you see a lot in like Middle Eastern cuisine of like a thousand years ago, which is some of the most sophisticated food, Mm. like and sophisticated recipes that you will ever see and that are fully. Just because it was so, it was a time of great literacy. When like when recipes in you know in Europe are like, you take this and you take that and you just cook it forth. That's it. Yes it's the whole recipe. You cook it and <laughs> serve it forth, and that's like it. And then you go to you know th- then you go to a cookbook from a thousand years ago in Baghdad. It's like five hundred recipes. It's got weights and measures. It actually explains stuff, but it is a whole different. Like ideas about it's a lot of stews and a lot of different ways of doing things. You have to kind of understand what they're talking about. It took me a long time to figure out some of that stuff. It's like they have, a, they have an amazing recipe that, and this is in the book, it's one of my favorites in the book. It's a fish. You take a giant fish and it's simultaneously cooked three ways. You take the fish and you stuff, you first of all, you stuff the head with like thyme and apple peelings and herbs and stuff. you stuff the, the head. And then you take an oiled cloth and you wrap it around the middle part of the fish, right? And then you take a, another oil cloth, but really thin, and you put it on the tail. And you can also, there's also this totally crazy stuffed version where you first grind up the fish and mix it with spices and do exactly the same thing. Like you put it back in the fish buns. Oh, yeah. But so then you put the whole fish in the oven and because parts are, that are hotter than the other, the head roasts. But the middle part, which is protected by all this cloth, oh yeah, sure, just it, it poaches, oh, and then the wow. tail because it's really soaked with oil with the sink cloth, like fries. Oh, but wow. it's one big fish, and you serve the whole thing at a giant table. Oh, it's crazy, wow. and just like that's such a complex and sophisticated thing to do. I mean, you don't see like restaurants in America trying anything like that now. So, so that's it's, gonna be a piece change. no it will not but it's incredibly like the stuff i love about that is it reminds you that it was a long time ago but people are people and people are smart you know i bet they're making great music then too it's the same kind of thing
1: we'll be right back after a word
0: from our sponsors go to pantheonpodcast.com/ Metallica enter your email and hit that button to be entered to win
3: and just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package
0: and guess what rockers you can enter every month so just do it and while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the US
2: what do you see you- what do you see as the oldest recipe still in regular rotation across the world? ooh good curries? Question.
3: Um, there's definitely. I mean, th- that. I mean, there's there's recipe. I can think of off, off the top of my head for an Indian just dessert. A lot of Indian desserts. If you go to India, they're, it's like they're they're simple in a sense and they're extremely sweet, but they're often very very tricky because they have four ingredients, but you really have to make them right, or they just fall apart, or they don't work, or they don't come together. Okay. Sure. Some of those recipes because sugar, you know, sugar is indigenous to India, basically. Right. So, oh, okay. you know, like, like jaggery, the kind of unrefined sugar that they cook today, like that, they've been growing there for like three, 4,000 years. I forget. There are recipes that really haven't changed much for like two or 3,000 years. Like, you can get it today and it probably hasn't changed. Jeez. <laughs> imp- the only is, like, so sugar, like, it wasn't until sugar came to like the Arab world that because they had a bunch more scientific skills, they actually started refining it and then, like, pure white sugar, which today is like demonized. It's like, Oh, it's so evil. Right. Like in, in medieval Europe, it was like, like black pepper, almost worth its weight in gold, like incredibly valuable and actually believed to have like mystic qualities to like balance your humors and like be perfectly healthy. And now we think of it as like the worst thing ever.
2: Well, I I don't, I don't think of it as the worst thing ever necessarily because (laughs) My my grandfather, it. my grandfather was born on a houseboat, and uh, and Are ended up records? ended up raising his children, my father and his siblings, uh, right in the heart of sugarcane country down here in South Louisiana. And man, one of my favorite <laughs> memories, one of the best memories I have, is walking out in those cane fields with my grandfather, and him pulling out his pocket knife and cutting a little piece of cane and handing it to me to chew on.
4: Well,
2: oh in my memory, I was walking with an angel. Yeah. You know, my father's, yeah, my father's father. It's one of the best memories I have. So sugar will always be, always be, you know, close and, and dear to my heart.
1: Especially when you have a drink with that awesome po' boy.
2: <laughs> Man, they stopped. Uh, he sold that, that, that soda pop, unfortunately. And I think they, they're no longer in production, but he had some amazing sodas. So, oh my gosh. I wanted to ask you guys, i
1: I'll, and I want to, Mark, I'll start off with you with this question. Uh, because I think Jay, I'm so
3: sorry, dude. Don't worry <laughs> about it. I'm so sorry.
1: Oh, man. Let everybody, just get it out right now. Then I, and then Jay died. Woo-hoo. And that was the best, <laughs> that, that was my most downloaded podcast. So, <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> so <laughs> Jay may have touched on his answer already, but I'll I'll, I'll circle back to him. But the, the question is going to be the same for you guys in your respective vocations. What is the hardest, Mark, in, in your case, maybe artist that you've covered? Because you've done these awesome SOS albums and, you, and you've just released SOS 4. Who is the most difficult <laughs> artist that you've covered? And when we circle back to Jay, what's maybe what's the most difficult cuisine that you've tackled? Oh,
2: so, I got it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Jay already knows his answer. All right. Mark first. I think um, Stevie Wonder can be very difficult to cover just because he's got... So many iconic songs, and they're, they're they can often, especially the early stuff, can often be really, really high for me in in my range. And there's just it's a relentless attack. Like there's a song called "You Met Your Match" that I covered on SOS One, and it's just relentless. It's nonstop. It's it, there's it. He never comes up for air seemingly. Stevie is probably the most difficult to cover.
1: Okay, so Jay, your turn. What's the most difficult cuisine oh, you wait, co- I, you've I, covered?
3: I just want to follow. I just want to follow up on that. Like, do you feel that the stuff is difficult to cover? Because actually, of your music, I, I respond. i personally like best to like the covers. I just find them like they really resonate with me. Does it often feel like a technical challenge, or just feeling that you're doing justice
2: to the to the material? It's it's either or typically, uh, my my highest priority would be to honor the material, but I think also technically achieving some semblance of respect is also part of that. Al Green, Al Green is another one that's tough just because he's got all this attitude and nuance that's like a sort of untrainable. I would think Teddy Pendergrass would be very difficult because his phrasing is not really in a pentameter. It's sort of kind of all over the place. So the technical challenges can be there for sure, but more than anything it's just people that have little tiny nuances or or a relentless approach to a to a particular lyric.
1: Right. Yeah. So, well, you did an amazing job on the Al Green track for the on the new SOS album, Driving Wheel. Oh, thanks, yes. Amazing. <laughs> thanks. So,
2: I took extra time yeah. for that one. I took <laughs> about two two extra months for that one. I have told you. Yeah. Lovely.
1: So, all right. So, Jay, what's the uh, most difficult cuisine you've covered?
3: So, I'll say. So, I'll see for me, there's a funny thing, and I, I wish I could say like it's the hardest part is connecting to the you know to the essential soul and knowing it. The truces and there's actually there's an inverse relationship to how old the cuisine is sometimes and and how difficult it is some of the really old stuff it's like that because you're really trying to figure out like what was that really like because it's such a long time ago and you're trying to find out exactly what the spices are using and they've probably changed there's like a very famous thing so there's a there's an there's a season called Silphium, which is incredibly popular in ancient Roman cuisine. It was so valuable. It was put on coins and it's extinct and nobody knows what it is. Oh, wow. We know what... They used to replace it, which is the which is the spice like asafetida, which is in a lot of that that pungency to a lot of Indian cooking. That stuff that's just smells kind of pungent, not like anything else. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. no one actually knows what Silphium was because it doesn't exist anymore. Wow. So there's that. But I'd say the real truth is, particularly as you get closer to the modern age. It's just the technical challenges of some of the stuff. There's a recipe in the last chapter of the book from 19th century New York from, uh, from Branhofer, who was the, uh, chef at the original. Del Mara, which was like one of the you know, fanciest restaurants in America at the time. Yeah, yeah. And in the 19th century, especially the real test piece for a chef was like cold dishes, weirdly enough. Oh, and wow. So, there's this, it's like a ballotine of squab a la Madison or something. And <laughs> what it is, is quite literally, it's it's a boned out squab, which is a pigeon. Yeah. It's boned out and it's filled with truffled force meat. And inside there's some cubes of ham and soie gras. And you cook that in like a mold in the oven, like a semicircular mold. Till it's cooked, and you take it out of the oven and chill it under a weight, so it's flat on one side, right? Then you take it out of the mold and you fill the mold with chofrois sauce, which is like a white sauce that's like gelatin-stabilized, and you put it back in the mold and you chill it again. Then you take it out of the mold, excuse me, a lot of this, you take it out <laughs> of the mold and you decorate it with this elaborately cut truffle on top, right? And then you fill the mold with uh, aspic, which is like a wine jello, basically? Yeah. and you put it back in the mold and you chill it again <laughs> and you take it out of the mold and that makes one of them. Oh God. It, You're supposed to make 12 of them and then you put the 12 of them on this armature that you make that you carve out of you know... I actually don't remember what that is part of, but that's not the bad part. Okay. So then, I would tell people the funny part is, I've only made half this recipe, because that I've done, all that I have done, it is a giant pain in the ass. But, <laughs> just boning out a lot of quails is a giant pain in the eye. Yeah, no <laughs> but, you then take uh, fat or wax, and you carve griffins holding scallop shells, and you put the whole thing on top of that, and you don't, del- you decorate it with truffles and coxcombs and more pieces of cut aspic. It just it just goes on and on for like a whole page describing the garnishes. Oh
2: my god! My god!
3: And just doing just, just try the just the recipe as it is in the in the cookbook is you know, you know that's, that's a day of your
2: life. Oh my god! This is I, I have a question. What is the most difficult recipe to cook that's also the most worth it? Oh, nice. Oh, that's a good one. I would say like a beef wellington, but I'm not very, you know, again, I'm not Yeah.
3: I mean, there's a difference. Okay. I'm gonna say this is from my cookbook, once again. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna restrict myself to my all right to, to my stuff. There's a lot of good ones. I mean, probably for me, this this if I had a signature dish, right, that like that I'm most associated with, it's this thing called a cock and thrice. Which yes. um if you if if you look at the book at the Tudor chapter, that insane terrifying mythical animal, it, you have to think of it like a traduction um, invented by like a black metal band.
1: Yes, <laughs> that's perfect. it was very, very
3: popular with uh with Henry the Eighth. And it's actually the filling of it is the um the Tudor mince pie, so it's a, it's a it's a lamb or pork filling with spices and dried fruits, and it's quite delicious. But what the, the thing is, is it represents a mythical animal. Wow. So it's a a suckling pig ah, sewn to a capon, which is a which is an emasculated rooster. So it's a rooster with balls cut off, so it gets extra fatty and delicious. And you sew them together.
1: That happened to me after I got married. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you sew them together and you stuff it, you know, with with the minced pie filling, and it's technically difficult. Only in actually figuring out how to get it to like I've actually developed a fairly complex way of sewing to do it. You kind of <laughs> under sew the tissues and then over sew the thing, but and it's just because I like spectacle, I think. But it is it is genuinely delicious, but it's a pain in the ass.
2: Do you so, sew them together? How? Like you present, is it sewn together in a, in a way to, to make it a real spectacle whenever you pull it out of and, the oven? And what do you sew? Yeah, it's with?
3: Like a whole. Um, wow. I, I use a thin cotton thread and like a very big, like an upholstery needle basically. <laughs> um, and you basically, cut, uh, there's a picture that
2: we can put up for this. Oh um, yeah. I can't wait to see this thing.
3: Uh, it's in the book. Like if you say you're covered the books. It's like, if you open it just to the tutor chapter, you'll see, right. you'll see, you'll see the thing you go, Oh, that guy's it's amazing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like the, the trick is if you, if you want to display it, particularly if you want it to kind of stand up, you have to, you have to sew it together. Strongly enough that it holds together. So I do this kind of trick where I sew all the flesh together and and actually loop the sewing behind the ribs. And then you bring the skin together on top and you sew it like you're, like you're fixing an old boot. <laughs> so you're sewing. So you're folding the two, the, the two, uh, different kinds of skin together and sewing them on the bottom. So you don't see big stitches on the outside. So the well, yeah, stitches are be- like hidden on the inside.
2: It's it's got to be tight enough that that it stands up, but not too tight that it rips apart during cooking.
3: Exactly. right? Exactly. As as it starts to shri- as it starts to shrink as it cooks, it, it, it gets a little tighter. So you got to leave a little bit of a play. But it's worth do- it's worth doing. What's That's really I cool
1: in the book is that the, the first of all the photography is just amazing. I mean, Lucy Schaefer did the photography on that, and she did a phenomenal job, and the photo of the thrice, it's done particularly well because
3: I don't see a seam in it. <laughs> it's wow. amazing. Because it's so yeah, it's sewed on the inside. There's kind of a seam on the back. And there's there's a thing you can't see holding it up, obviously, so it's standing up on its side. It's but amazing. yeah, no, huge, huge shout out to Lucy Schaefer and especially to our food stylist, Victoria Granoff. Who is completely amazing. Like they they made that it's an unbelievable pleasure and did some spectacular work. So. Yeah.
1: It, it's really the whole book yeah. it's, it's not only are there really wild, awesome recipes, but it's it's kind of a work of art because not only the content, but the presentation. You've
3: Yeah, yeah Rizzoli our publishers are known for making these very they make beautiful books. That was that was one of the things I was so excited to work with them. So
1: I could for me. I'm dying. I'm I'm going to buy a physical copy of this just because I think this thing is this book is amazing. But some of the ingredients, I'm not sure where I would get some of this. Like, do you have any
3: suggestions on where to find like bear meat? I was actually going to say that when uh, when when we were talking about you know about New York and all the stuff you can get here. I was a, a little bit worried at first actually because like. New York is one of those cities where we have some incredible purveyors and there's these amazing shops, but the truth is you can get almost everything. Not the bear meat. Um, honestly, you can, you, you can buy so much of the stuff over the internet. You can find, like I was worried at first and I remember like when I was younger, I'd get weird, cool cookbooks. They'd often have a section in the back that actually told you, you know, in like the eighties and nineties, Oh, these are the only places you can get this and they'd actually tell you where to find this. But one of the incredible things I think about living in this age is you can order, you can order everything. Uh bear meat is actually a little bit tricky. The bear meat that I use is farmed. Oh uh, and they God. only harvest about twice a year. And I actually once had a situation. I was doing a dinner at the beard house. And when I ordered the bear meat, I was right in between the harvest season. And that was a bear shortage, believe it or not, which is a thing. Um, but I did, I called around and I begged borrowed, and I got, I got just enough to, uh, to do the the Mongolian bear stew, which is, which is a really fun dish. Well, if but, you ever um, have a
1: bear shortage, let me know, because I know a guy I live close to the West Virginia border and I know a guy named uncle <laughs> who can get you some bear meat.
3: Yeah, no, there, that was the backup plan. I actually was calling around to my, my more rural friends to see if anybody had, uh, and they do. I mean, but the you know the the, the farm bear is is you know hu- humanely farmed and hu- humanely called. So, what kind of bear? Is it black black bear? It's a black bear, I think. Yeah. The thing, the thing I've always wondered about uh, about um, if I could get like hunted bear, and not farm bear, is that you know bears have a really interesting like food cycle, like, you know, part of the year, they're just eating salmon brains and then part of the year they're just eating berries. And I always wondered if you catch them at the right time, if, if the flesh tastes different, but oh, any of wow. you hunters out there, who have got who got some bear, and you know, what season it was, it was, you know, killed in and you want to, you want to invite me over, we can have a little, uh, little cook off.
2: I'll reach out to I'm Uncle there.
3: Dirt
1: and we'll find out. <laughs>
2: what's the uh, what's the most surprisingly good food that you've ever had that you you thought what might not be very good that's terms, actually e- right?
3: that's actually an easy one and it was the the weirdest case of like what are call cognitive dissonance that you could imagine so uh, in Peru in the Amazon there's a palm fruit that falls off a tree and there's basically a beetle that lays its egg inside the nut part of it, right? Okay. And the grub of that beetle only eats that nut, right? So you pick one up off the ground and you just like cut it open with machete and you take out this living grub that's about <laughs> the size of like a tangerine <laughs> uh, segment, and, but it's alive and wiggling and dead white, right? Uh-oh. And you eat it while it's alive. Oh. and it tastes lovely it tastes kind of like coconut it's just sweet and nice and pleasant but like getting that thing from your hand into your mouth (laughs) the first time (laughs) is not the easiest thing to do but it is one of those things where you're like wow this is actually really good and it's
2: you know do you have any idea who first ate oysters
3: oh oyster i mean oysters
2: Go back. Is the, I mean, yeah. Who was the guy or the gal that said, you know what? I am starving and I see these little river otters going after those things. Yeah. and I'm going to go for it. If anybody I knows think, good think, cuisine, it's a river otter. Yeah.
3: I think the truth is there's so many, I, I think so many things have to do with how hungry people get, you know? And that's an easy one. Shellfish. But what you don't, you know someone that blows my mind actually tapioca and like bubble tea cuz exactly. no cuz like the tapioca in, in in bubble tea which is like a huge culinary starch like people across like parts of Africa and parts of Southeast Asia it's like a primary food group and it comes it comes from the manioc root right which is poisonous oh so you have to be hungry enough to like eat it and get really sick, and then say, well, maybe there's some way, because like if you grind it up and let it sit and ferment, and you wash it a bunch of times, you basically, you can wash the poisonous part out, and then you get water that's soaked with starch, and then you also get the dry flour, which you can make, like, that awesome, like, Brazilian cheesy bread, like, uh, queijo." Which is, which is like manioc flour with some of the starch, or you can just take that starch and you dry it into pearls and then you rehydrate it and put it in bubble tea. Wow. But like in the abstract, it's poisonous. So like I'm constantly amazed by the ingenuity of hungry humans. Yeah. Like we are really smart when we get hungry enough.
2: No or, doubt about it.
3: Or <laughs> really just
1: persistent because mushrooms are the oh, same yeah. way, you know? How you know, if somebody had to eat a mushroom and die and somebody's like, okay, don't eat that one. So now <laughs> yeah. But then that somebody else had to go, okay, well that one killed Fag. Let's go and try this other one that looks a little different. Krog, <laughs> yeah. um, you eat that one. <laughs>
3: Pretty much. I mean, there's so many things that are like that, but
2: you know, I'm super fascinated by that stuff. I'm sure we've learned a ton from animals. I'm sure we've learned a large share of our knowledge about wild foods. Yeah.
3: Like where to find stuff. Yeah.
1: And why do they not eat that one type of
3: mushroom? Yeah. So the weird thing, there's a lot of uh, stuff that's poisonous to us. That's not, you know, that's not poisonous to birds. For example, there's a lot of things like that that you got to be careful about that. Uh, You
2: know, I'm really interested in the origins of certain foods. I I have a friend who was a photographer for national geographic and lived in Africa for seven years. And he he grew up here in South Louisiana and said that he saw the origins of all kinds of dishes like jambalayas and gumbo. Absolutely. That stuff fascinates me is how how food migrates and morphs into new things based on how it travels and who it travels with and what's available. All those,
3: yeah, all those okra stews, you know, <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah, no, particularly you know, and then and then you get your your, your French influence from the can, you know French Canadians coming down there. No, it's incredibly like red beans and rice all these, and there's a lot of you know like Indigenous peoples like succotash and stuff, which actually comes out of the really efficient way that like, Native Americans um, planted their gardens like very differently from the, from the way we do now. We plant like this over here and that over there and that over there. They had a very very efficient ecosystem where we plant this right next to this, and you and you bury the dead fish heads that you didn't eat, you know, because it puts the nitrogen back in the soil, and you can get very very dense plots of land that, that grow, you know, like a really astonishing diversity of food.
1: Yeah. That's wild. So I love that stuff. Yeah. <laughs>
3: so have you guys ever had the
1: worlds collide where maybe Jay, maybe you'd, you were, you'd considered doing something musical or, or Mark, you decided to create a dish and offer it to you. One of your brother's restaurants or something. You, either of you guys ever kind of ventured off into the other world in, in a experimental way.
2: I've wanted to for a very long time. I, I've got a whole, uh, a side project that we call Fork Broussard that hasn't gotten off the ground yet, but I definitely want to bring more food, uh, do some some really nice private meals with music. Me and my dad put you know put on a little show with music because I've done some of those kinds of events and they're always so much fun.
1: Sound like a blast.
3: What about you? Yeah, I've given up. I would love to dinner to do dinners with a musical element and collaborate with musicians, particularly period musicians or people with, you know, with some fur rooting in, in a specific classical tradition of something. Personally, I've given up uh, music since I played in punk bands in college. So, uh, <laughs> well, you know, maybe a
1: Tudor feast with, uh, with, with Jay's Jay doom. That punk would band. be amazing. Or yeah, just complete <laughs> a complete dichotomy. <laughs> If there, Lots if you can't, if you, if you,
2: all right. So if you can't, if you can't work in a modern kitchen, all right, you don't want to, yeah. you, you can't have access to any modern conveniences. What era do you think would have been the most exciting to cook in from the, from your work? Ancient Rome, the Tudors, where, If where I could you...
3: still, I guess if I could still be a head chef, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Not the spit boy.
2: Yeah. yeah. I
3: mean, not the spit boy. I'm, I'll tell you, I'm obsessed with like 10th century Baghdad Perhaps that because it's just, it was such a moment of culture and there's such sophistication and diversity. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the world of like a thousand and one nights, you know, like Harun al-Rashid and these, you know, you know, maybe, maybe I'm a sucker, but I'm just like, I feel like that's a cuisine. It's, it was so sophisticated and so broad.
2: I can't imagine what 10th century Baghdad was like. I know Europe was in the dark ages, right?
3: Pretty yeah, pretty much I mean a funny thing like but if you think about like medieval European cuisine, you know like say three four hundred years later, a funny thing about that is the taste profile that that is closest to and I'm talking and, and I'm not talking about the tenth century bag, I'm talking about like medieval Europe is actually closest to like modern Persian food that kind of wow we. Sour, a lot of a lot of you know, vinegars and sour grape juice, like unripe grape juice called verju, a lot of that kind of stuff with like not spice, you know, because peppers, like hot spicy stuff wasn't a thing yet, but you know, like aromatic spices, cinnamon and nutmeg and all these things that were unbelievably expensive, you know, and only, you know, only like the really rich could afford, but and also believed to have these kind of magical healing properties. I guess, you know, I I think the funny answer question is, I don't think, I don't think the period matters. I think, I think food throughout history across the world has always been incredibly sophisticated Mm. and amazing. Like no matter where you are, sometime in history, someone, I think there's times when somebody's doing it better than someone else, but I'm constantly amazed at how sophisticated these cuisines are, and just cooking is just fucking fun, man. Yes, it's (laughs) like playing music, you know. It's like
2: you know what I find super fascinating about food as well is I know that women are doing the lion's share of the cooking around the globe, and yet it does seem to me that there, especially in Cajun culture, every male that I know cooks and cooks really, really really well. I I've got Mexican friends where, where, you know, the men do a lot of the cooking as well. What, where have you seen, you know, men doing the best cooking in your opinion?
3: Well, I I think there's there's often this thing where, you know, because, because men were dominant in the professional sense, you know, the, the, you know, the women were cooking at home and then the, 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 the chefs who were running kitchens were usually, men, because in in, in a lot of cultures, like, you know, men ran things. But one thing I think about a lot is that particularly when, you know, because I only work from original documentation, so I have to have an actual cookbook that was written. And when I think about a lot of the cookbooks that I work from, from, say, the medieval European cookbook, I think a lot about why these cookbooks exist. And I think it's for a funny reason, because first of all, these cookbooks are by our standards, kind of rudimentary. They are still the like you take this and you take that and you take this and you take that and you mix, you know, you cook it until it is done and you <laughs> serve it forth. And every once in a while, they've got some crazy bit like you know you put it back in the oven for four our fathers. Everyone's Catholic <laughs> and everybody knows how long. Or there was a recipe that said like put it back in the oven for the time it takes a man to walk around a field. Oh what? my, God only knows what But think about it for a second. If you're a master chef, and a lot of these, these cookbooks, the European ones only have like 50 recipes in them, say, or 100, but whatever. If you're a master chef, right, you've been doing this since you were a kid, right? You don't really need a recipe for most of that stuff, right? you got it in your head. It's not yeah. that many recipes. Like, on the stuff that I make all the time, I don't look at a recipe for it doesn't do it, you know? Right. So the reason, and also remember, this is a book. This is a book that was handwritten, probably, not sure. printed yet. So this is an incredibly valuable, high-status item that only someone really rich could have. Who is that book really for? That book was probably created for the noble woman of the house, who was expected to handle the finances of the house and to manage the kitchen. So oh, she could yeah. know what's supposed to be in that recipe. So she you know, could know that if we're gonna spend a cow on a nutmeg, because a nutmeg might cost the same as a cow, right, wow. she would have to know that it's being used appropriately, and she would have to know that that sugar that she is paying its waiting gold for is being used appropriately and is needed. So I'm pretty sure that like, the reason I'm able to do what I do, that I have these original documents, was created primarily for women in that period, not for the the chefs who may not have been literate. Frankly, I think a lot of those master wow. chefs may not have been able to read.
2: That's you know w- Were you were we seeing cookbooks printed as you know as early as uh, other books were being printed?
3: Uh, pretty close, like pretty like you know, but like the, the really older books are all handwritten. Even these sure. like amazing like these incredible 10th century Baghdad once was like they actually didn't have a a strong printing tradition they were much more about calligraphy so like once you know printing took the world by storm like once people started printing books they started printing
1: everything Everything. you
3: know but most of the older ones and some of them we only have printed versions but they're printed versions that, that are copied from you know hand handwritten ones that were done by scribes right even the, the oldest cookbook in the world which is you know the only real cookbook which is apicius from like the 1st century BCE in Rome the oldest existing copies of that i think are from 400 years later they were copied gotcha. out wow. times yeah
1: all right so mark you you asked jay a question i wanted to ask you this, the similar question so you in this day and age you were able to record produce makes release albums <laughs> from your home. You don't even you don't have to leave the house. If you couldn't do that, what era of music would you rather be in?
2: No question about it. I would love to be uh an apprentice for Johann Bach. There's no wow. there's no nobody else that I would rather. Amazing. For, oh, that's incredible. Or to, or to be in a choir for Johann Bach that guy's music has been being made for like 300, 400 years now. Yeah. There ain't nobody covering my stuff 400 years. <laughs> <laughs> nobody doing it.
3: Yeah. Uh, that is a beautiful sentiment, sir. That is oh <laughs> man. Well, probably, um, I might even agree with you on that.
2: <laughs> yeah, every time I think uh, I've done something really clever musically, I, I realize that Johann Bach probably already did it. Yeah. <laughs> You <laughs> probably already did it or something real, real close.
1: Oh, yeah. man, that is amazing. Well, guys, I know we've been doing this for an hour already, and it's just flown by. I've just had a blast, but I want to make sure everybody knows about your current projects. So, I know Mark, you've got the SOS 4 album. That is an album for, it's a benefit, it's a charity album. Who's it going for, and how can people find it? And it's, it's all blues covers.
2: Yeah. So it's a a blues covers album. I started doing these covers albums about 15 years ago or so. Uh, These days we raise money with these projects. We've raised money for homeless women and children. We've raised money for sick children. This particular album goes to a charity called Guitars Over Guns. Just trying to get musicians, uh, young, young kids putting musical instruments in their hands to try and keep them off the streets. I worked with my buddy Joe Bonamassa on this album. Joe produced this this record for me, played all over the record, helped me pick all the songs, and was really a, the the guiding force behind the project. I couldn't be happier with the way things turned out. In fact, it's it's so good that we're going back in Joe and I in January to make an original blues album together. Oh, so um, to yeah, you can you can you can pick it up anywhere.
1: Oh, that is Amazing. awesome! That is awesome. And Jay, you are releasing a cookbook that. It's basically what we've been talking about this whole time it's 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 basically what a history of the world in in 10 meals it's it's, it's just amazing it's called
3: a, yeah the book is called the history of the world in 10 dinners and that's uh myself and the historian victoria flexor who's been my partner through all this business partner that is it is coming out on september 19th it is september what it's august now right yeah we're, yeah, yeah. we're still can in we august? please <laughs> edit this though i don't sound insane you got it <laughs> <gasps> It's coming out on September 19th. It is on pre-sale
2: on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Are you guys doing any kind of live events? Are you gonna do the 10 dinners live for a, like a crowd? We're definitely doing some of them. We're probably going
3: back to the Beard House where we've cooked before. Nice. We might be doing something with the Museum of Food and Drink. We're doing a bunch of in stores here in New York to support that, but we're definitely gonna be getting out there and cooking and you should come.
2: All right, last question. <laughs> yeah, if I came, if I was only going to be in New York for breakfast, are oh, you killing me? Okay. where where should I go for breakfast? I knew you going to ask me that. I don't know. No, no, I do know. Dim sum. Dim sum for breakfast.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah dim, dim sum's breakfast.
2: All right. Yeah, Best maybe choice. Golden
3: Unicorn or somewhere out in Flushing.
2: All right, what if I'm only there for lunch? I'm your best friend. I'm only coming to New York for one day. I've never been to New York. I'm from Podunkville, but we became friends on the internet somehow. And I'm you just coming, coming in for, for lunch? one lunch. Do so. Because
3: <laughs> 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 um, you do it for breakfast or lunch, you don't do it for dinner. Dinner would be trickier, but if like, you do it for breakfast or lunch, man there's nothing like dim sum it's a it's a perfect cultural experience
2: i do it's, enjoy dim sum yeah so All right, Mark, i do so enjoy it thoroughly
1: now i gotta ask you a question so if i if, if i was not schooled in the blues and i wanted to know a little bit more who who do you recommend you start with
2: oh man it's such a it, it's a time-spanning genre so the early stuff is really different than the new stuff oh for sure it's really that's a hard one man. Um John Lee Hooker is probably my favorite though. It's okay. just so low down and dirty and Yeah. Yeah. Bobby Blue Bland it, for vocals, Bobby Blue Bland for like real just low down dirty blues. John Lee Hooker, I think is probably okay. the best. Excellent to start to start to with. Start, yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah, for sure.
1: Jay, we, we kind of got off track there a little bit, but where can people find the book? How can they order it? I think we started to talk about a little bit about that,
3: but I don't remember. If yeah, you're it's, uh, it's pre-order on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It will be in Barnes and & Noble and find bookstores everywhere across America. Follow me on G- my Instagram, Jay Rifle, J Y R E I F E L, and Edible History, Edible
2: History NYC come on buy the book. It's, yeah, it's, it's even worth it. Congratulations and, on getting that book, dude. That's bad.
3: Thank you so much, man. And I'm I'll definitely done. pick up. And it's like, I love your, I love your records, man. So, <laughs> well, thank Mark, you so where, where Jay brought up a good point. Where can people
1: follow you on Instagram to find out where you're going to be touring and uh, um, playing some of this amazing music live.
2: Yeah. I'm at Mark Broussard everywhere that you, you can find it on social media. I'm most active on Instagram probably, but you can also find me on Twitter on occasion as well. And uh, we're always on tour. We're constantly on tour. So we'll, we'll be somewhere near you in the near future. I guarantee it. All right.
1: Before we go, I'm, this is for both of you. Jay, is there anything you wanted to ask Mark that we didn't get to? And Mark, vice versa, is there anything you want to ask Jay? Uh, we'll start off with Jay. Is there anything that, that we didn't get a chance to touch on with Mark?
0: Uh, just one
3: thing. We're going to be in New York.
2: Let's go to dinner or dim sound. Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't think I'm coming back to New York until next spring. But I I will take you up on that dim sum. Yeah,
3: or maybe next time I'm in Louisiana.
2: Yeah. All right. Uh, what's what's your favorite dish to cook for friends?
3: Hey man, he's thinking. He's thinking hard. You <sighs> up at the ceiling. That's killing me. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at those kind of questions. <laughs> you know, it's like my favorite you dish. You say to dim sum, I'm gonna be so mad. No, no. My favorite cook dish to cook from friends is always an improvisation. It's always, Uh, Oh, what do we have? Let's cook that. That's, that's just like, that's the fun of cooking. That's that's why that's the musical part of cooking. You know, it's like, what do we got? Let's make something good. It's usually going to be some kind of a curry or some kind of riff on that. You know, but it's no, it's like, there's a joy in like looking at your friend's face saying, What do these guys want to eat? What do we have? Let's just do it. Like, I don't want to plan it. I don't want to be, you know, I'm, I'm not so trying to why, impress anyone.
2: So why are those TV shows so stressful whenever it's limited in <laughs> ingredients?
4: <laughs>
2: oh, that,
3: well, because like they're it's this, you know, they're silly. They're, it's competitive <laughs> cooking. Like, you know, like Americans love to make, make stuff a challenge and competitive. And you're, you know, you won. And so, you know, cooking is not like you don't win. It's
2: like, have there have there been cooking stars born from those shows? Because the the singing shows have borne very little fruit with regards to making stars. Yeah,
3: there's, definitely, there's people who have restaurants and careers because of those shows, and uh, you know,
1: besides Guy Fieri, I can't stand that. Like in in,
2: in <laughs> other words, in, a, in other words, when when young artists come to me and say, "Man, I'm I'm going to audition for Idol, or I'm going to audition for The Voice." my advice typically is no, don't do it. It's bad. It's a bad idea because of the con- the contracts that they will lock some of these kids into. If they end up winning the entire season, the contracts can be pretty restrictive.
3: Yeah. That is not, my understanding is that's not the same on the, on the competitive cooking show. In fact, they don't lock you into anything. It's just like they, it's nice that you get, you get nothing out of it basically except the recognition. So lots of people come out of like top chef and because of their notoriety, someone then funds a restaurant for them. There's very few people fund their own restaurants. Um, so I think there is, I mean, you know, what, uh, you know, what a lot of people say is, do it if you've got something to promote. Like I, I did those as, you know, have a cookbook to promote and they're fun. You know, it's like, they're fun. Like a competitive cooking is fun. You know, it's like if you were people who go to guitar duels all the time, it's fun and it's fun for people to watch. I'm not sure that moves music forward. Like, I'm not sure what like, you know, the monster of virtuosity particularly, particularly proves like, the great constellation music, you
2: know. Yeah, the, like the, the singing competition shows are really more about the the judges than anything. It seems. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, because we really can't count on less than two hands the number of really bona fide like arena acts or stadium acts that have come out of those shows. I, yeah, uh, it, it's it's unfortunate. Unfortunately, I think. Yeah, it's we we can go on that forever. Yeah. It's a, it it's a very interesting business to say the least.
3: All right, maybe- it's very weird for both. You know, I, I do wish there was. I wish there was uh, cooking shows that were actually closer in a sense to the to the musical ones, In that, I wish they weren't so short. We weren't trying to do stuff in twenty five minutes. Mm. It's fun. It's a fundamental exercise. But I like. I've always wished there was a show where like. You know, you had 48 solid hours to like really, you know, to really create something. But I mean, I guess they have elements of that on Talk Chef and stuff. But
2: maybe
1: that's uh, another podcast we get you guys on competition, musical and food competitions
2: i'm in i got opinions i got uh, opinions right. i want to share them
1: well we'll wait till you, you come back from europe or, or maybe they're the uh your next leg of the u.s we'll, we'll figure it out we'll get you guys back together because we'll, uh, this was a blast and uh, I, I think we actually did just hit on a really cool topic because music and food competitions are huge on tv and, and right. make an actual cultural impact even if they don't produce big stars, so yeah, it's a really interesting, yeah, no interesting topic. So, guys, thank you
2: so much. This was so much fun. Appreciate you, Mark Great. Jay. Is a pleasure, man. Such a pleasure meeting you, man. I really hope, I really hope we get to meet in person one of these days. Yeah, brother, come out to a show sometime.
3: I would love to.